The following presentation is from Mountain Park Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Mountain Park, along with additional audio and video teachings, visit mountainpark.org. If you were here with us last week, then you were with us when we started off the, the, the next stage of our journey that we're calling AD, the year of our Lord, Anno Domini. We're spending the whole year talking about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, not just learning about Jesus, but imagining what it would be like to be one of the 12, to have a, a connection, a relationship with Jesus, and where we... Uh, 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 you know, human relationships have stages, and so we can walk through these different stages, and most human relationships go through a stage of conflict, and it's an important part of the journey. Conflict, in many ways, defines a relationship. That uh, Relationships are really effortless until the conflict kicks in. Con- conflict helps us Uh, identify the depth and the strength and the weakness in our relationships. So conflict is pretty natural and it's pretty important in our relationships. If we're having a real relationship with Jesus, an actual relationship with him, then there will be conflict in that. Maybe that's not language that you're uh, familiar with or comfortable with, but there'll be ways where we wrestle with Jesus. In the upcoming weeks, we're going to talk about... um, about what it means to have conflict with him if we disagree with him or if we're struggling with the fact that Jesus didn't do what we hoped he would do or he did do something that we didn't want him to do and, and, and whatever, the different ways that we're going to struggle with him. We're going to look at that over the next few weeks. But this morning, we're going to talk about the conflict that ensues when we simply don't understand him. We simply don't understand. What do we do when we don't understand? If I go to a mechanic and the mechanic says to me, uh, Mr. Fuller, your camber is negative and so uh, the differential is slipping and so we're going to have to replace your kingpin. See, now, if, that, if, if somebody says that to me, I'm, I'm not going to uh, struggle with disagreeing with the mechanic. I'm not going to have this big debate over who's right and who's wrong. I don't understand. I don't understand the words that are coming out of your mouth. I don't understand. And so today, we're going to talk about a tool in terms of understanding one another, in terms of understanding one another relationally, and that will help us connect with Jesus. In fact, this is, I believe, the most powerful relational tool known to man and woman. You're not going to want to leave and go to the bathroom on that one. Yeah. Okay, as we launch into that, would you uh, bow your heads and pray with me? Father, I thank you that we get to have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. That we're not just learning information, but we're, we're digging in. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to be real and authentic today, that we would not pretend that that relationship is something that it's not, that we would just, just be absolutely honest and celebrate the depth and just be honest about the fact that maybe there's no real relationship right now for some who are here in this room. May we be honest as we come before you. And the honesty may stir up some conflict, and that's okay. You are strong enough to handle that. Come and um, give us focus and attention here today as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As a wedding present, when my wife and I got married X number of years ago, a friend of my mother-in-law to be, a friend that I did not know, Uh, gave us a seminar for listening skills. 
<laughs> we're in our early 20s, and we got a seminar for listening skills. Put that on the back of the list as far as thank you cards, you know. I mean, I'd rather have the overpriced China that I could take back and get what I want. Uh, thank you very much. And here, listening skills. I mean, listening skills. I mean, I, I don't need to have a sight class. I don't need a tasting course in order to, to use the senses that God's given us. I can listen. I'm a listener. <laughs> well, it turns out it was the best present that we got. It absolutely, bar none, was the best wedding present that we got. I was too young, too immature to understand the power of listening skills. Some stuff I had actually uh, uh, known and was using as kind of just kind of embraced from things around me and maybe some intuitive stuff, but this uh, a seminar really helped to solidify the value and how this stuff all works. See, most of us think we're pretty good listeners. Most of you here in the room, if I ask you to raise your hand, you say, oh, I, I'm a good listener. Most of you are not. Most of us are not. I mean, listening is a tricky skill, and most of us are not great at it. We listen to talk show um, hosts, talk show radio programs. And if you, if you have a regular talk show that you listen to, these are professional communicators. Professional communicators, it's what they get paid to do. They're very good at communication, and what they're good at is interrupting people, at stopping people. If somebody doesn't, uh, isn't super articulate in the question that they're asking on the other end of the phone, they just kind of jump on them and pounce all over them because they're excellent communicators and they can pounce all over the deal. And then if things really get out of hand, they can just push the magic button, beep, and go on to the next caller. We listen to that, and that becomes, in some ways, uh, how we kind of elevate what it means to be a good communicator, to win the argument, to be an effective communicator is to be powerful and to be dominating. And it loses the power and the effectiveness of what it means to be a good listener. See, being a good listener, this may blow your mind. Being a good listener means that when we're listening to somebody... We're not thinking about what we're going to say next. I know that's weird. But that's what we do so often. Somebody's talking, and we're just kind of thinking about how we're, we can be prepared for when they take a breath for us to jump in. And so being a good listener means that we're setting aside our own story, which is way better than their story. And we are setting aside our defense. We are setting aside our, our retort. We are setting aside those things and entering into listening to the other person and doing all that we can to prove to that person that we understand what they're saying. Not just at the end. They say, do you understand? Yep, got it. That doesn't prove anything. We prove that we understand the person. We reflective listen, let them know, here's what I heard you say. Here's what I hear you saying with your words. Here's what I, what I see and feel you communicating with your heart. There's a whole skill set to being a good listener. And it is, it is transforming. It's very powerful. In fact, my, my wife and I, we've set up a little game with our kids. Periodically, we do what we call a step it up game. And what it is is uh, we put little Velcro stickies, uh, 40 of them, and they put them on. They've created this little uh, fold, folder thing here. These little Velcro stickies that kind of create a path. 
And when they do something well on this journey, we've done different journeys with them, then they get to move the penny up. Here's a little penny with Velcro on the back of it. They get to move the penny up and advance in the game. And so this one, uh, the one that we've been doing for the past uh, couple months, we've been working on with, uh, with our kids, all three of our kids, Prove that you understand. And it's about listening skills with our kids so that when we recognize that they are trying to, to use some of the phrases that we're teaching them as they're interacting with one another, that they can bump their penny up a little bit and there's a, a victory every 10 uh, uh, Velcro dots. There's a little victory here, a little uh, sort of positive incentive, blah, 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 blah. Now, your first thought is probably, oh my goodness. <laughs> Uh, yes, we're that dorky, and uh, yes, it would be that uh, tricky to be a child in our home. Um, and kids are pretty smart. Kids have figured out loopholes. We're natural loopholers uh, as kids and as adults. And so what this means, uh, here on the back of it, there is a list of phrases that connect with the idea of prove that you understand. Phrases like, help me understand what you're saying, those kinds of things. And so uh, now, when our, uh, if we say to a child, uh, okay, let's turn the TV off and, because it's time to go to bed. Uh, in the past, perhaps, they may have done that. Now what they do is they say, uh, Father, I understand you saying that you want me to turn the TV off because it's time to go to bed, but I was wondering if I could finish watching this show. Now, see, that's a win-win for them because they get to disobey me right there and do, get what they want, and then they get their penny to move up because they've done the little action on the thing there. So it's not a perfect system. I'm not saying for a second that it's a perfect system. Why would we do this? Why would we go through all this work? Why would we have the kids roll their eyes and I understand you saying da, 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 da. Because we believe this is the most powerful relational tool they could have. If our kids have one relational tool, it's our job as parents to pour into our kids in whatever way we can, right? If we believe if there's one relational tool, we want them to uh, head into college with, move away from our house with, it's this one relational tool to have the ability to listen to the head and to the heart of people that they're doing life with. We're trying. That's, that's what it is. It's some intentionality. We're trying. And this, this is the most powerful relational tool, and it's not just about conflict management. It's not just you pull it out when there's a problem. It's very effective when there's a problem, but it's not just for when there's a problem. If you want to get that job, you want to get that girl, you want to get out of that speeding ticket, then listen to the person you're dealing with. Listen to them. Prove that you understand what's going on. Things will go well. It's a powerful tool. Jesus understands the power of listening. He's the greatest communicator who's ever walked the earth. Absolutely. Most influential, powerful communicator. But he also understood how to listen to people. We have the story of Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. And he was a tax collector, and nobody wanted to listen to a wee little tax collector. So he was up on the tree trying to see what was going on, and Jesus notices him and pulls him down and goes to his house and spends time with him and listens to him and listens to where he's at and what's going on in his heart. And his whole home is transformed by the power of Jesus entering into that experience. There's also a story of a paralytic who's by the pool of Bethesda. 
and he's uh, paralyzed, and men and women are walking past him every day. Many, 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 hundreds of people walking past him every day, and he's just sitting there for 38 years, 38 years until Jesus comes up and says, do you want to be well? And then has an interaction with him, and it's a transforming experience for the paralytic by the pool of Bethesda. Maybe some of you have felt like no one has heard you for 38 years. Maybe you feel like no one, no one has for a long time really sat down and listened to your heart. That the pace of life is so fast, it's so tricky. When's the last time you have been truly listened to? We pay hundreds of dollars for counselors to listen to us. It's a powerful tool. The disciples sometimes did get it. There were times where they they did pretty well, and they would uh, set Jesus aside and say, Jesus, could you help us understand what's going on? They want to do good listening skills with Jesus. I looked at a story a few weeks back about the, the spreading of the seeds, the seeds that landed on different soil, and the disciples, as a part of that story, pulled Jesus aside and said, we need a little help with this parable. Can you explain it to us? They're seeking understanding with Jesus. That's good. But then there were times where these 12, these ones who were closest to Jesus, didn't do quite so well. Last week, we looked at the story of Peter saying to Jesus, there's no way that this is going to happen to you in Jerusalem, that you're going to go and you're going to die as you're describing. Peter says, absolutely no way. Do you remember what Jesus says to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You don't understand what I'm saying. You're not listening to me, Peter. I just called you the rock, but now there's conflict here because you're not paying attention. You're not listening to what I'm saying. We are wise to use this most powerful relational tool, not only with each other, but with Christ. May we not assume Jesus is saying things that he's not saying. Sometimes we get little pieces somewhere. We get a memory, maybe a a previous spiritual or religious situation, uh, circumstance, and then we take that and and we carry that with us the rest of our lives, assuming that Jesus perhaps has said something that he has not said. I want to take a look at a few examples from what is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. That's where we're going to spend our time. Matthew chapters 5 through 7. I love the Sermon on the Mount. Love the Sermon on the Mount. A number of years back, I did a series called The Greatest Sermon Ever. And it obviously wasn't mine. It was looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and unpacking this a little bit. I've had the uh, pleasure of doing some Bible studies and read books about the Sermon on the Mount a couple years ago as a staff, we went through it uh, weekly. We would, we would dig into it as a staff and then actually memorize it one chunk at a time. The only one who actually nailed the thing and memorized it was Greg Battle. Uh, way to go, Greg Battle. Uh, he's right now, he's actually climbing out of the Grand Canyon with our hiking ministry right now. Right now. Can you see him? He's climbing out of there, but he's the one who memorized it. Uh, Marsh thinks he memorizes he memorized it, but uh, the rest of us know he basically cheated, and so it doesn't count. But that, that's just between you and me, really. That's not. That's a don't don't uh, talk to him about that. But uh, we went after this journey. Love the Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters: Matthew chapters five, six, and seven, that have transformed the world. They have shaped 
governments and legal systems. They have shaped how we view how we're supposed to interact with one another. Amazing. And much of the Sermon on the Mount can be misunderstood, flipped around, taken out of context because we're not paying attention and listening. What is Jesus really saying here? I want to look at a few examples. First of all, chapter 5, near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 15. Matthew chapter 5, verse, sorry, verse 17. Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, despite the clarity of Jesus' words here, I mean crystal clarity, many of us understand Jesus to come and nullify the law and what happens in the Old Testament. Despite the clarity, we believe he nullifies the Old Testament. There are hundreds of laws and precepts and commandments that are found in the Old Testament. And then uh, in terms of uh, Judaism, in terms of the Jewish faith, there are many hundreds of more, hundreds other laws that are added on uh, and interpreted to be a part of the Jewish tradition. And so many who are, who are Christians uh, look at the Pharisees as examples in the New Testament and say they are hung up on the law. Twisted, hung up on the law, they're not quite getting it right. Jesus uh, has come to set us free from the law. So we don't have to think about the law at all. Those were ancient, that was ancient language for an ancient civilization. And we no longer have to worry about that at all. That's not what Jesus is saying. He says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Jesus is all that the law was aiming for, all that it was intended to be. So it is important for us to to embrace and understand the Old Testament in order to understand more about who Jesus is. We're not to discard the Old Testament. Okay, let me give you another example that is a little more uh, closer to home for most of us. Jump to later on in chapter 5. Verse 38, chapter 5, verse 38, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, some will take this very familiar phrase, turn the other cheek, and land on Jesus being a pacifist, and land on turn the other cheek, turn the other cheek, as being evidence that Jesus uh, sees that there is absolutely no time ever for there to be any violence that we are not to defend ourselves, we are not to protect ourselves, we are not to have any weapons to do so. But that's not what it's saying. That's not what this is saying. Turn the other cheek doesn't mean an absolute pacifist experience. The context of what Jesus is saying here is he's responding to the Old Testament, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. He's talking about revenge. He's talking about using power to punish other people. I've been wronged. I'm going to strike back. 
That's what Jesus is talking about here. But make no mistake, Jesus is fierce. In the book of Revelation, it describes him carrying a sharp sword that he will rule the nations with an iron scepter. The Old Testament refers to Jesus and says, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is one. It's important for us to not have a misunderstanding of who this this amazing, gracious, sweet, loving Jesus is. He was not a wimp. It's important for us to understand the fullness of who Jesus is. Let me give one more example. The beginning of chapter 7. This one's probably the most familiar to us. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. We all probably know this, that some people don't like to be challenged in any way. Some people don't like to be verbally challenged about anything that's going on in their life. So anytime you might say to a a, a friend, you might uh, talk to a friend or ask a friend about their alcohol habits, or anytime you might talk to a family member about their spending habits, or you might talk to a coworker about their sexual habits, then they pull out the Matthew 7-1 card, they pull it out and say, judge not lest ye be judged. And that's the only time they use Shakespearean English in their life, they pull out that, because they know that there. Judge not lest ye be judged. So the Lord says, thank you very much. And so assuming that Jesus is saying, you can't challenge anyone. You can't open your mouth and challenge anybody. That's not what Jesus is saying. There's a huge difference between lovingly challenging somebody and being judgmental. Big difference. This is not saying that we never have the opportunity to speak lovingly into people's lives. This is saying, don't be judgmental. Christians have a terrible reputation for being judgmental. One of the least attractive, most frustrating things for non-believers with regard to Christians is that Christians are judgmental. And how that often looks, the negative version of that, the icky version of that, is when a a righteous, self-righteous believer identifies an area that they are not struggling with, and then points fingers in the lives of others who are struggling with that area. Because they're not struggling with it. So it's easy to point fingers and say, you ought to be careful with that. You ought to not do that anymore. Because in the areas where we struggle, we don't point fingers very much because, well, that's God's gracious about that stuff. That's God's grace. But that area there, whew, you are messed up. That's the way it shows up. And it just looks, feels terrible. It's not cool. And it's not what Jesus is talking about. He says, let me continue, verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You see what where Jesus is going with this whole section, he's going for for plank removal, for speck removal. 
He's not saying, don't say anything to one another. Just walk around with those big, ugly planks and those specks in your eyes. He's not saying that. He's, he is interested in plank removal, in speck removal. He's interested in that. That's important to him. He's saying, don't be judgmental, but it's okay to, to challenge one another. May we be careful to not throw out the card, judge not let yesterday be judged, without fully understanding what Jesus is saying. It's important to use this concept of listening and understanding one another as we engage with Jesus. Let me wrap up in the same way that Jesus wraps up the Sermon on the Mount. I want to look at his, his final words here in the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of chapter 7, he says in verse 24, a story that you're likely familiar with. Let's just enjoy it here for a moment here. Therefore, this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone who hears these words of mine puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Most of the time, when we understand truth, when we embrace and allow truth to penetrate our lives, and we realize that we had not had that truth, what many will say is, I wish I had known that 10 years ago. How many times has that been your experience with truth? I'm thankful to have it now, but I wish I knew it 10 years ago. I wish I knew 10 years ago that it is damaging to be judgmental as a Christian with our family, with those around us, and to point fingers at other people. How incredibly damaging that is. I wish I, wish I knew that 10 years ago. Uh, maybe some are thinking, I wish I knew 10 years ago that being a follower of Christ was fun that it was actually an enjoyable journey, that being a follower of Christ wasn't this thing that just sucks away life, but Jesus comes to give us life. I wish I knew that 10 years ago. I wouldn't have been so resistant for so long. I wish I knew the power of listening skills 10 years ago before my marriage got into the trouble that it's in now. What we mean when we're saying that in connection with how Jesus wraps up the Sermon on the Mount is, I wish I had built a different foundation for my house. I wish I knew 10 years ago some of the truths that I've learned now, and I wish I had built my house differently. And Jesus compares building a house on rock versus building it on sand, and the reason we build it on sand is that's the easy path. It's easy to dig in sand. It's the story of the three little pigs and the two lazy first pigs who make the easy house. It's the same story. That it's easy to dig in sand. It's hard to chip away at the rocks and have a solid foundation. 
It's hard to invest in a relationship with Christ where we learn more about what he's saying, who he is, and the consistency of his character. Please don't assume that you understand all that Jesus is and all that he has said. I would be a fool to think that. Even if you've been a believer for 40 years. And please don't assume that you can't understand what Jesus is saying. Because it's too complicated and there's too many views and there's too many books out there. It's just too much. That's the easy route. But the, the solid rock foundation route is that we read it. We spend time with it. We absorb it. We wrestle with it. We disagree with ourselves five years from now than where we are right now because we're staying engaged with it. We haven't stopped in that relationship. We're continuing to do Bible studies, to do a D group where we're wrestling with other people and trying to do life together and figure this stuff out together. We're reading books about Scripture to help us understand it. Take a class. Take a seminar. Take the steps Take the, the, the necessary uh, steps of work in order to reap the benefit of understanding Jesus more. There's three ways for us to respond to the story that Jesus gives here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Some hear that story, hear the story of the two different homes built on rock and built on sand, and some are comforted by that. For some, that story is comforting because you are taking the steps to build a solid rock foundation for your, for your home, for your life. And it's hard work, and sometimes it's frustrating, and you don't even know if that made any difference. This past year of being obedient to, to Christ has made any difference. This story is comforting to say, yes, that's why I'm doing it. I'm building a solid foundation for me, for my family, for the generations to follow me. For some, this story is a warning because you're in the middle of building and maybe you've gotten a little bit lazy and you said, I know enough about spirituality. I know enough about Jesus. My box has been checked. And so I don't need to dig in anymore. I don't need to lean in and, and, and get deeper in my relationship with Christ. And it's a warning to say, no, that's shifting sand. And then for others, this story maybe more of an explanation. Maybe you are standing in the rubble of a house that has crumbled, of a, of a, of a phase, a stage in your life where it just feels like, feels like the whole thing has crumbled around you. And this story is an explanation that says, that's why. That's why. Maybe we look back and find out how had we built our house on the sand and then the whole thing fell apart. Here's the good news. Please hear the good news. It's never too late to build the foundation of your house. It's never too late. Rebuild a new house. It's never too late to go back down and reinforce the foundation for your house. It's never too late. Maybe today, the message for you is that some of the conflict that you are having with Jesus is simply the result of you having stopped listening to him. Some of the conflict is you just, you just don't pay attention to him anymore. You want to be one of the 12? If you signed up on there, you want to hang out with Jesus, then that means we listen to him about every area of our lives, not just the ones we're comfortable with, but every area of our lives. 
We don't shut him out and ignore him about certain areas of our lives. That's a solid foundation. If there was a teacher, like Jesus sat with 12 disciples, if there was a teacher who gathered with 12 who were not listening, it would be reasonable for that teacher to say, hey, pay attention. Pay attention. It's no accident that that phrase is a part of the English language. Pay attention. It is the most, it is the most valuable commodity that we can give somebody is our attention. Pay attention. Sometimes it costs us. It costs us time. It costs us maybe a dangerous change in our life somehow. Pay attention. Pay attention to your family. What is your husband or your wife trying to say to you right now? Maybe he or she does not have the words, but there's an attempt to, to let you in on something that's, that's a big deal. Pay attention. Pay attention to your kids. What do they need from you right now? Listen to them. Pay them what is most valuable, your attention. Pay attention to the, to the friends around you, to the people you're doing life with. Who knows who is struggling or suffering with someone, with something, and you're the only person in their lives that maybe has the opportunity to bring healing or redemption into that place, that God wants to use that relationship for something transforming. What are they saying to you at work? If they know you're a believer, and they're maybe giving some hints, they're talking with you in ways they're not talking with anybody else. Because maybe there's some hope that you offer. Listen to them. And pay attention to Jesus. As you read, as you hear, maybe it's some story that you've heard a thousand times before. Listen again. And be attentive for areas where he may want to speak into some other part of your life. Every part of your life, just surrender it to him. Pay attention. We're going to... Um, close by giving you an opportunity to respond to Jesus here, to give him some focused attention, to listen to him. If you've been with us for a while, there's a number of different stations in the room. You can come up to the cross and write something on a card and nail it to the cross, something you brought into this room you don't want to leave with. You can come up here in the front for unassisted prayer. No one's going to bother you. You can come light a candle, which represents the light of Christ. You can be anointed over here to the right, someone on the on the, on the board here, would uh, be honored to anoint you with the healing touch of God. There's assisted prayer at either of the exits on the side where folks would love to pray with you. There's communion available in the center back if you are a follower of Christ, or you can just stay where you are. Just worship, sing, listen, sit, journal, write. Just pay attention. Five minutes. Five minutes. Give him all you got. Listen wholeheartedly. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to give you five minutes. My goodness, you deserve so much more. But we got to start somewhere. Maybe some here in this room have never, have never fully given you their attention for five minutes. Jesus, would you meet us at this time? 
whatever conflict we may have with you because there's a misunderstanding, whatever conflict we're having with other people, with ourselves, God, would you come and meet us in that place so that you may be honored and glorified. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.